Today's scripture reading is Mark 15, verses 40. You can be seated, sorry. <laughs> uh, today's scripture reading is the end of Mark, so we're doing fifth, chapter 15, verse 40 through 16, 8. I'm going to be reading in ESV, but if you're reading from the few Bibles, it should match up pretty well. Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking, it, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Crossbridge. Today, uh, we finish our sermon series of the Gospel of Mark. We started it at the end of April earlier this year. Six and a half months, 16 chapters, 25 sermons. Lots happened since then. And in the midst of all that, we had the, the continual proclamation of God's word to us through Mark's gospel. The gospel that, that points us to who Jesus is, what he came to do, and invites us to follow him as disciples. And so in light of all that, let's take a moment uh, just to pray as we come before the Lord. Father God, we, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live a perfect and sinless life and to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that by your grace we've been able to preach through this entire book of Mark and be enriched, be challenged, to have grown spiritually through your word to us. As we close out this sermon series, imprint your word on our minds and our hearts and our lives. Help us not to forget what you have said and still have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're finishing Mark today, and some of you might have noticed that as we were reading through the, uh, this passage today, that we stopped at verse 8. 
It wasn't a mistake. Before we, we jump into our passage, passage for today, let me, let me take a few minutes perhaps to explain what's going on here. So if you look in your Bibles or your phone apps, uh, you might notice some brackets perhaps after verse 8 where it says some of the, the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 9 to 20, are set off in double brackets, separated, for, uh, separated from what came before. We're stopping at verse 8 because the Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. And what does that mean? You know, most scholars don't think that verses 9 to 20 were part of the original Gospel that Mark wrote. And so this begs the question, how did, how did God's Word, our Bible, come about? Some of you, perhaps, you have in your hand a Bible, the inspired, authoritative Word of God. It's probably an English Bible, and it's a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. It's a translation of the New Testament from Greek. And so since Mark is in the New Testament, where, where did this Greek New Testament come from? And it's not like that the heavens opened up and you know, angelic voices come down and this book comes floating, uh, floating down until it, it rests gently into Mark's hands. Neither do we believe that God simply dictated everything and Mark wrote it down word for word. That's not what inspiration is about. That's not what inspiration is. Some of you who are in baptism class, some of this should sound familiar. Rather, Mark and, and the rest of the authors of the Bible used their personality, their intellect, they, they studied, they did their research, and together with the Holy Spirit, wrote it down in such a way that their words are God's words. Now, after they wrote it, people began to copy it. There was no Xerox copy machine. People couldn't just take out their phones and, and take a picture of it like what we do with, when someone has a PowerPoint. And so you had scribes who would copy manuscripts over and over and over again. Amazingly, there's over 5,000 manuscripts of all or part of the Greek New Testament. There is no other ancient document that has better manuscript evidence than the Bible. Homer's Iliad, some of you maybe read that for class in school. You know, recently they have about 1,800. That's, I think that's the most up-to-date number. The works of Aristotle or Plato, I think only have about a dozen or two. Now, we don't have the original copy of the Bible. We don't have the original copy of Mark when he, when he wrote it down. But that doesn't mean that we can't know what God's Word said. Now, what's the benefit of having all these manuscripts copied over a period of 1,400 years? Scholars and, and, and some pastors, uh, if they're really into it, uh, go through this process called textual criticism. And so now we're getting a little bit nerdy here, but just bear with me. It's this practice of comparison, right? You're, you're comparing all these copies uh, for the primary purpose of determining the exact wording of the original. And so I want to give you two, two reasons why verses 9 to 20 are not part of our Bible, and then two implications from that. First reason, the external evidence. And so we look at all these copies, these, these manuscripts that we have, we've dug, dug out from archaeological digs, when they were copied, where they were copied, who copied them. And the earliest manuscripts, those that date closer to the time that Mark wrote his gospel, those tend to be more reliable. After all, as time passes by, 
people might add to Scripture, add to God's Word, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so it's just like the telephone game that you've played before, right? At some point, usually not at the beginning, there's always that person who messes it up. And tracing it back, you can kind of see how that message changed over time. And so earlier manuscripts can be, are, are, are more reliable. And the earliest manuscripts don't contain verses 9 to 20. The second reason, internal evidence. We seek to explain how this passage, how these verses came about. You know, does it fit within the rest of the narrative, the rest of the gospel? So for verses 9 to 20, it makes more sense that someone might, might read Mark's ending and it ends at verse 8 and think that something's missing, right? The gospel ends kind of abruptly. The woman just kind of flee in silence and they're afraid they don't say anything to anyone. But obviously we know that that ultimately didn't happen because otherwise we wouldn't be meeting here worshiping God. And so these copyists, they, these scribes, they already know the ending from Matthew's gospel and maybe some of the other gospels. And so they think, well, maybe we'll write something similar just to kind of fill it out. And this is also combined with the fact that the language of verses 9 to 20 doesn't sound like Mark. Verses 9 to 20 has a, has a style and uses a vocabulary that's very different from the rest of the gospel. And so that's, that's a simplification, but you know, with all these things in mind, then scholars and, and many uh, churches believe that you know, verses 9 and 20 are not part of the Word of God. And so where does that leave us then? So two quick points. One, there's probably many other people in this world who actually do believe that verses 9 to 20 is the Word of God. They preach from it. They do their devotions in it. And so let's be clear. What, what we have here this morning is not an issue of orthodoxy or heresy. Our salvation does not rest, does not fall on whether or not you believe verses 9 to 20 to be part of Scripture. It's not like if we don't have these verses, then Jesus is not God. So I, I don't want your faith this morning to be shaken or disturbed. In fact, hopefully it should be the opposite, you know, recognizing that our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is not a blind faith. We're, as Christians, we're, we're not afraid of going through the study and, and going through the research and looking at the evidence. Second, if verses 9 and 20 are not Scripture, then what do we do with it? Because it's kind of still there in our printed Bibles. Now, the events in verses 9 and 20 probably happened. And it may be true, though, but it's not authoritative as God's word for God's people. And so these verses don't serve as the basis of authority for our lives. But they can serve as a pointer to authority, right? Just kind of like a sermon illustration. So, for example, the stories and analogies that I share with you sometimes, they're not authoritative. Me sharing a couple weeks ago about getting a haircut at my barber does not change your life. And it shouldn't. And if it does, we should talk about it afterwards. But what it does do is it points you to God's Word, right? So, setting verses 9 to 20 aside, uh, 9 to 20 aside, let's, let's look at our passage today. Mark 15, 40 to 16, 8. This passage is both true and authoritative. What this means is that not only did it happen, but it has implications as meaning it has authority for our lives today. And so we're going to look at these 
two aspects for the end of Mark's gospel as he writes about the resurrection. Is it true? And if so, since it's true in the word of God, how is it authoritative for our lives? What difference does it make? And so first, as Mark is writing his his gospel, carried along by the Holy Spirit, he writes it in a way to show that the resurrection is historical fact, not fanciful fiction. That's the first point. See, Mark, as he's writing this gospel, he wants us to see that this is a true story. This is good news, not fake news. See, there's there's plenty of arguments that the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, occurred. And and there's at least three that I kind of want to point out today from our passage. And the first is this. The Gospels are eyewitness accounts. So when you read the Gospels, they're written like eyewitness accounts, eyewitness testimony. And so if they're written like this, then we're going to see earmarks of that in Mark's writing. Richard Bauckham, he's, this, he's a scholar in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He does a, a tremendous job of establishing the historicity of the Gospels and the story of Jesus. It's not just myth or fiction. It's fact. And in, in his book, he talks about how these seemingly random names that we come across in our reading, they, they act as footnotes. So as you're reading, you you read about these people, and you probably don't know who they are. And so he gives a couple examples from Mark. For example, in Mark 15, just last week, we're told that a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, helps Jesus carry his cross. He's described there as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, they're not mentioned anywhere else in Mark except there. Who, Who is Alexander and Rufus? I have no idea. But Mark's readers do. And Mark is telling his readers, hey, hey, you know Alex and Rufy? You know, Simon and Cyrene, that, that, he's their dad. And so you can go to them and, and ask their father, their dad, about these, these, these events. Did he really carry the cross? Did this really happen? The New Testament was written within, within a generation of these events. It was written early enough that if you're trying to spa, uh, spread false information. It's going to get shut down pretty quickly. Here's another example. Mark doesn't typically name people. And, and yet in our passage, three separate times he mentions by name Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Why? These names were footnotes to the early readers that they could actually go to these women and ask them, hey, you know, did this really happen? What was it like? They can go to these witnesses and ask them for an account. And and notice when their names are mentioned. Verse 40, verse 47, and verse 1. At Jesus' crucifixion, at his burial, at his empty tomb. They witnessed it all, every step from the crucifixion to the resurrection. The Gospels, they, they include these, uh, these random names. They, the Gospels also include these random details. But they're not random, perhaps, because it's simply what the eyewitnesses remembered as they're kind of recounting their, what they saw to Mark. So verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, why does it matter that the young man was sitting on the right side? 
You know, we might think, hey, does, does the right side, is this supposed to be a symbol for something? It doesn't really add anything to the story. But that's not the point. The point was that it was part of the account. These days, you know, as you guys read fiction, people write fiction with all these details to make the story sound more believable, right? But that actually wasn't how it was done in Mark's time. If Mark was actually doing it, he'd be intentionally lying and people would know. So details matter. Elon Musk, he was asked about what sort of questions he asked in interviews. And so one very important question he'll ask is this. What were the most difficult problems you faced and how did you solve them? And so he explained why. People who really solved the problem, they know exactly how they solved it. They know the little details. These candidates are able to talk in depth about the struggles that they faced and the strategies they used. Great candidates can answer this question on multiple levels. Conversely, those who pretend that they were the problem solvers can maybe go one level of detail and then they get stuck. So details, however random it might seem to us, it matters. The Gospels are eyewitness accounts. Here's the second reason why the resurrection is historical fact and not fanciful fiction. The women are witnesses. Now, if you're aware of the culture back then, you would know that you know, women had low status, were not credible witnesses, in fact, their, their testimony was not admissible uh, evidence in both Jewish and Roman courts. So if you're making the resurrection of Jesus Christ up, why on earth would you pick women as your first witnesses? It would undermine the entire plausibility of your account. You'd be telling some guy, hey, look, yeah, you know, that Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. And so they'll ask, all right, great, you know, you know how do you know that? Where'd you hear that from? Well, these women came, stop right there. No need to go any further. They're making it up. Why would women be the first witnesses unless it actually happened? You know, unfortunately, you know, during that time, their testimony was not credible. And today, uh, today's situation in the court of law, even today, there's, there's cross-examination, right, when someone's on trial. And one of the purposes of that is to discredit the witnesses, so maybe perhaps for some of the folks in the back, I'm reminded of a couple scenes in the movie Legally Blonde, where Reese Witherspoon's character, she's a lawyer, she's trying to be, she discredits the witness by demonstrating that their story doesn't add up. Well, in the case of the Greco-Roman and Jewish culture, you didn't even need to discredit the woman to begin with. To have a woman as your first witness was a non-starter. But the gospel authors include this because it happened this way. God planned for it to happen this way. And it prompts the readers, it prompts us, believe these women. Believe these women. If you go down that route, that kind of sounds a little bit familiar. Here's the third reason. The men are missing. So one common claim is that the resurrection was a hoax. The disciples wanted it to be true, so they stole his body and spread the news that Christ was raised from the dead. Even Matthew records this in his gospel, that while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, and they told the, the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money 
to the soldiers. They said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And don't worry about it. If it comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him. We'll keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they, direct, did as they were directed. And the story has been spread to this day. <coughs> but as we've been going through Mark, we've seen his disciples desert him. We've seen his disciples deny him. And where are they now as we, we start chapter 15, verse 40 and following? They're in hiding. They're gone. They're demoralized. Jesus wasn't the first person to claim to be the Messiah, and he certainly wasn't the last. And maybe perhaps when Jesus died, they thought, oh man, we, we bet on the wrong horse. And so they fled. They were in hiding. They were scared. And they were even there to see where the body was buried, to know where to go, to steal it. Now the disciples, the people back then, they believed in this general resurrection that was going to happen later for the people of God. The disciples, in their mind, did not expect there to be a resurrection just for Jesus. It was not plausible to them that Christ would have been resurrected. It was not anywhere possible to them that God would come to them as a man. And yet, what we eventually see at the end of the other Gospels is them worshiping Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. None of this was originally plausible. Something, something must have changed. Something must have, ha- have happened to change their entire outlook. So in, in sociology, there's this term called plausibility structures. We all have plausibility structures. A, a plausibility structure is a filter in your mind that allows you to form beliefs around what you already consider to be possible. And, and much of what you consider to be possible is largely d- determined by your social cultural context. And so perhaps for, for some of you who grew up in church, some of the youth, you think of your own testimony and you think, well, you know, I, I kind of always believed in God. And that's due in part to kind of the upbringing that you had. That doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you have a real personal relationship with God. You know, we have to give our lives to Christ. Now, plausibility structures, they don't tell us if a claim or something is true, only whether it's true enough for us to accept. So, for example, if you come home and you find that the house is clean, the refrigerator is stocked full of food, what's more plausible? That some magical elves came in and and did you a favor? Or your spouse got home early and took care of the chores? Here's another example. As, uh, as Yin and I were getting ready to move to Boston earlier this year, you know, we had started to sell a lot of our old possessions and furniture, just trying to get rid of a lot of junk and, and selling whatever we, we could on Facebook Marketplace, just to clean out what we didn't need, get a couple bucks in return. So maybe perhaps a, a pair of old ski goggles, a bike pump, a shoe rack. And so one Saturday... Late, late at night, in the middle of the night, actually it was the night before Easter Sunday, I ended up selling this duffel bag to a guy named Jesus in the parking lot of a store in the middle of the night. That's where Jesus was between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, let's say, let's say that some people walk by or the police drive by and they see me handing a duffel bag to some other guy and receiving cash money in return. 
what do you think is the most plausible scenario to them? Now remember, plausibility structures don't tell us if a claim or something is true, only whether it's true enough for us to accept. And so if they were to look in the duffel bag, it would be empty, because I didn't break bad. So for these disciples who, who doubted, you know, who were missing, their plausibility structure prevented them from believing all of this, even though it was true, even though it did happen. Something, something great and powerful enough had to have occurred to change the very fundamental apparatus by which they processed information in their beliefs. And that something was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One author writes that when the apostles are finally found proclaiming the resurrection, one can feel more assurance in the truth of their proclamation when one considers how difficult they found it to be convinced. The resurrection is historical fact, not fanciful fiction. That's in part what Mark wants us to see this morning. It's true. But not only is it true, it's authoritative. It's God's word to us as mean for us. It has implications for our lives. That's to say this, that the resurrection is real and it really matters. So before we were kind of looking at Mark and how he wrote the passage and why that was important. And so now we're going we're gonna to zoom in. We're going to look at the passage itself. Since the resurrection is real, then it really matters for us. We have to respond to that good news. That's what news is, right? Something that has already been done, something that's already happened or is happening. The only thing that we can do is respond to it. It changes us. And our passage highlights that for us. Now, I don't know why, but it seems like every time I'm up here preaching, I get a passage that's a Markin sandwich. So let's be clear, you know, not every passage in Mark is a Markin sandwich. Just this one and the other three I also preached on. <laughs> I do hope that, you know, if, you're in C, uh, if your parents are in CM or some of your friends start asking you, oh, look, you know, what's Mark about? Your answer is not sandwiches. Now let's look at the sandwich. The concept here should be pretty familiar to you by now, right? One story split in half, insert another story in the middle. You got your bread, meat, bread, A, B, A. And so here we have this story of the woman that surrounds the story of Joseph. What does Mark want us to see? Joseph acts with boldness while the woman flee with fear. There's this contrast here. In verse 40, we're told that that the women are looking on from a distance. They haven't deserted him. They haven't denied him. But this distance does remind us of Peter, who earlier on also followed Jesus at a distance. And the story of the woman picks up again in chapter 16, verse 1. They're on the way to the tomb. They discovered that the stone was rolled away, and this young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, says to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Notice their response. The last verse of the Gospel of Mark, verse 8. They went out, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, in Mark, the announcement of this angel, the the young man, is literally the gospel. The good news that, that Christ has risen. Do not fear. Jesus is not here. The empty tomb becomes the first pulpit. In the woman's reaction... They hear this good news, the gospel, Jesus Christ has risen. Now they're commanded to go and tell the missing men, the disciples. Instead, their response is, they flee in fear and remain silent. Now, right in the middle of this story, Mark inserts another story, focusing on Joseph. Verses 42 to 46 Now, what he's responding to is not necessarily the resurrection, but he's still responding to Christ. What we find here is that Joseph is an unlikely disciple. He's a respected member of the council, the very body of leadership that just crucified Jesus. Now, you know, we don't know if maybe he was there, maybe, you know, he didn't speak up, maybe maybe he just would, you know, something happened. But look, verse 43 It says he was looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate asking for the body of Jesus. Now, it took courage to ask for the body of someone who's just been declared an enemy of the state. Now, normally the Romans, they had no issue leaving the body of a crucified criminal hanging there for days, letting the birds feed off the carcass, all of it to serve as a message, as a deterrent to would-be criminals. And so for Joseph to go and ask for the body so soon potentially undermined the entire Roman justice system. And yet he boldly goes. He makes a request that normally would have come from the dead person's family and friends. But here it's Joseph. And with this contrast between these two stories, what does that mean for us today? What what difference does it make? The resurrection is true. It did happen. It matters. Not just because it's a historical event, but because it's a salvation event. And so what is our response to the resurrection? to the gospel, to Jesus. Be faithful, not fearful. At the beginning of Mark, Jesus commands the people to be silent, but they spoke. At the end of Mark, Mary and her companions are commanded to speak, but they flee in silence. Being faithful here means to speak up. And we spent 25 sermons, 25 sermons on the Gospel of Mark. 
And I'm told that when we first started this series, the emphasis was on discipleship, on following Jesus. And it still is, even with this last passage in Mark. You know, even as I joined Midway and, and preached through some of these passages, God's, word, God's words through Mark was particularly con- convicting to me and, and hopefully to some of you. Following Jesus is not the easiest thing in the world. And if it is, we, we might need to reevaluate some things. Following Jesus does take boldness, takes courage, takes faith. But thanks be to God that even these things we do not by our own strength, but by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So brothers and sisters, let us be faithful, not fearful. We've been entrusted with the gospel. For the past six and a half months, we've heard sermon after sermon. We've heard the gospel preached. Now what? How will we respond? We have seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We've seen something. It's time to say something. And as we follow him, let's together be faithful and not fearful in gratitude and obedience and worship and trust to our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for the resurrection. Lord, oftentimes we take it for granted, Lord. We take for granted the good news of what, what this means. Father, imprint on our own hearts and our lives who we are in you, who you've made us to be. Allow us to respond in faithfulness, in discipleship, following you no matter the cost, because you paid the cost for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.